Hey, everybody, I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and, of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering, so please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. And if I seem a little low energy today, it's because I've been kind of fighting a cold, I think. But I'm going to get tested for the COVIDs because now everything is scary if you even think you have a cold shit from Shinoli. Got to make sure that it's not that cold. Um, So yeah, so don't worry. I'll take care of myself. But if I seem a little low energy, it's because yesterday I just wasn't feeling well. And so I just slept a lot. And I'm going to go to bed early tonight and take care of myself because that's what we should do, right? I have to practice what I preach. But we have bunches of your questions. Also, we're rolling into Thanksgiving. This will actually be going out on Thanksgiving. I'm recording this early because I got to have my mashed potatoes, you know, without having to work. Um, But I hope those of you in the States who celebrate Thanksgiving are having a wonderful, happy Thanksgiving. I can't, I know I say it all the time, but I can't say it enough how thankful I am for each and every one of you. It's not just, you know, I know people say that when they're like making millions of dollars and they're like, thank you to my fans for buying my shit. No, it's not just that. It's not, it's not even that like fans or followers create a business. It's more the fact that like, I feel like we're a real community and Earlier today, I was having a live stream with my Patreon people and it, you guys just help me feel good about what I'm doing, remind me of why I'm doing what I'm doing and, and just, yeah, keep me, keep me going. You're really the reason I get asked all the time, like what keeps you motivated and what, why do you still create? Now you've created new things and like, what makes you want to create these new things? And the truth is you all of you. So thank you for being part of the community. Thank you for supporting me over the years. Thank you for all of the the watching and the sharing and the sharing in experience with other members of the community because of all of that really makes, it just makes things great. It makes me feel good. Hopefully it makes you feel good and our community can continue to grow and all that good stuff. So anyways, I love you all. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. I'm super thankful for you and everything that you've done for me over the years. And I hope you just enjoy this time off. Without further ado, I have 10 questions. So let's just get into them. Now, the first question says, hey, Katie, how do therapists deal with things that trigger their own mental illnesses? I want to be a therapist, but I struggle with anxiety and eating disorders myself. And I'm afraid that there will be a patient who triggers me, potentially even to the point of relapse. So this was a great question. And it's not something that I've really talked about that much in the past, I don't think. I think I've talked about like, you know, therapists owning their own shit and getting care for their own shit before you become a therapist and continually while you're a therapist. And that still, you know, is a factor here that we all have our own stuff. And whatever that stuff is, whether it's uh, like this person has anxiety or eating disorders, or whether it's our own past addictions, or our own issues with our mother or whatever it can be. um, The truth about it is that we have to keep all that in check. Anyways, we always have to, to manage our own shit and keep that stuff together. But there's a great thing you can do when you're a therapist also is if you are still currently working on something and don't feel that you would be able to help someone because it's still very prevalent in your own life because we're human too. We're not supposed to be perfect, recovered from everything, feeling wonderful about everything before we can help others, right? We can do this wonderful thing called refer out. Now, I haven't had to do this myself, but there are limitations to what I feel comfortable with, right? Like I've told you guys a lot in the past that like if I have a trauma patient who is working through trauma and talking it out with me, however, that's not enough. And I think they need a more specialized care, like an EMDR, a schema therapy, a somatic experiencing, something like that, because I'm not a it's not even licensed. What's the word I'm looking for? It's like certified because you take these courses. If you guys don't realize when when therapists do 
other modalities like EMDR, they have to go through this like training program. And Alexa told me she was doing because you have to get it up to date every couple of years or something. And she was just doing her her re-up and it was like six Saturday mornings at like 6 a.m. I was like, wow, your dedication, that's rough. It's so early. But anyways, it's things like that, right? So we have to do these things to become certified and I'm not that person. So if I can't, I refer out and I would encourage people who struggle with something currently, like let's say when my dad passed away, someone else came in who was dealing with the death of a family member and I just didn't feel like I was in a place to help them because I was too in it myself. That's a situation where you're able to refer out and that's completely okay. And I know people think referrals can be hurtful, but I'm not talking referrals when you've been seeing them for a while. I'm talking they come in or call to make an appointment and you hear what their issues are and you're like, you know what? I don't specialize in XYZ at the time. Let me give you some names and numbers of people who do. That's it. Um, You can do that right away. You cannot charge them for the first session and refer them out immediately. There are things that we can do to make this work so that it's best for both. And so I would really encourage you to A, work on your own stuff like it sounds like you're doing, but we have to have our own support system in place and we have to have treatments that are working and, and people we can rely on. Trust me, it's really important when you're seeing patients, especially when you move into it when you're starting out because we just need that kind of check. And a supervisor is great for that kind of stuff too, not our own shit, but helping us keep our own shit in check. We can talk to them about it, but our own therapist, supervisor, uh, maybe other clinicians that we talk to got to keep our own shit together. Then if we have certain things that is just limitations to us as a person, you know, like maybe we had a narcissistic mom. So to deal with other people with narcissistic mothers just triggers us. It's super upsetting. We'd rather not. We can refer those people out. We're not perfect, but we are supposed to put our patient's care first. So not taking them on when we know that we're not best is part of that care. And so that's really that's really how we deal with it. And I think the 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 biggest part of being a therapist is the own, owning your own shit and knowing what it is so that we can properly manage it and we can deal with it so that our patients are not affected by it. Does that make sense? And so when your question like how do therapists deal with things that trigger their own mental illnesses, we deal with our shit and refer out as needed to make sure that our patients are getting the right care. And so you can still be a therapist. You can be an amazing therapist. However, maybe eating disorders aren't really your thing. I don't, I don't know if anxiety is something that could be detrimental. I've, I've had other colleagues of mine who struggle with anxiety and I haven't heard of it being triggered in the way that I know eating disorders can as an eating disorder therapist. Trust me, my patients tell me all the time, all the ways that we can be triggered. But anyways, finding out where your limitations are and not, don't wait don't wait to refer out because we want our patients to get the best care. And if we're not that care, we want them to, you know, we want to let them know right away so they don't waste time and money on us when we already kind of know that it's not in our wheelhouse, you know. And just as an FYI, there's a lot of types of patients that I will refer out like more trauma, more specialized trauma care. Um, I don't understand addiction fully. I've treated a few, but it's just not in my wheelhouse. So if someone needs like what I think is a more specialized care in that realm, I refer that out as well. Um, ADHD is one that I refer out to just because I can help with some of it, but it's not really in my wheelhouse. And it's something, all of these are things that I can kind of manage within a certain point, but then for other patients who are needing something different that I don't understand or don't feel I'm well, well educated or, I don't know, have the experience needed to help them with it, then, you know, you refer out. So long story short, take care of your own shit, get your own help, get it in check, and then refer out as needed. And that's how we manage. And also we have colleagues we can call on if we don't understand something that can get me through in some situations where I'm like, oh, but they came in and they were talking about depression. But now it looks like it's a, there might be a little ADHD. And I'll, I'll you know, talk to a, a colleague of mine who specializes in it and do a consultation. And they might say, you know, I would refer out, or they'll just give me some tools and techniques to help me get through that. And then we get back into the thing that we were working on before. So it just being, being aware of your limitations as a mental health professional is really important. And your limitations as a human, because we're all human, and we're doing the best we can. Okay, I hope that that's helpful. You're going to make a great therapist. Okay, don't worry. Question number two says, Hi, Katie, is it weird that I really want to cry in therapy, but never can? No, it's not weird. It's super, super common. I've always been someone that suppresses and ignores my emotions because I grew up thinking that they were a sign of weakness. 
Because of this, I genuinely don't know how to be emotional in front of others. I sometimes envy the people that cry in therapy because I never can. I feel like because I don't cry and show emotion, it makes my struggles seem less valid. Hmm, that's interesting judgment that you're placing on yourself. Is it weird to want to cry in therapy or is it just me wanting to seek validation? Hmm. Any tips on learning how to show emotions in front of others? Thank you so much for all that you do. This sounds a lot like the validation component is big because not wanting to cry, like wanting to cry in therapy and not being able to is very common. And to your point, because you grew up thinking that emotions were a sign of weakness. So it's going to take a little while for you to realize that that's not true. That's like a deeply, probably a deep uh, or firmly held false belief that you have, if that makes sense. Like it's deep within ourselves and it's not a true belief, but we have all this evidence from our childhood that's unhealthy evidence, but evidence nonetheless that proves to us that showing emotion is, you know, is a sign of weakness. Or potentially for some of my patients in the past, showing emotion meant that we got uh, hurt. Maybe it was physical abuse or emotional abuse. And we, we had that happen to us if we showed emotion. So we learned how to not. Um, but whatever the cause or whatever the reason, it doesn't really matter. It's a reason and you're, it's pr- probably part of a defense meca- mechanism in you is to not show emotion, not cry. But Man, sometimes we really want to because crying is so cathartic and God, it feels so fucking good, right? And so it makes sense that you'd want to. And part of it could, I'd be curious about that validation component and just think about it yourself. No judgment, just be curious. So maybe it's journaling about like, okay, so if I was able to cry in therapy, what is it that I was hoping to get out of it? Is it because I want her to see how much pain I'm in? Do I want my therapist to to really recognize how hard this is? And I feel like I'm not expressing it. Is that what it is? Is it validation for myself? Is it that I can fully represent what's really what's going on for me? Is that what it is? Is it that I don't feel like it's bad enough if I don't cry? Like, be curious about those things. Journal about it. Think about it. No judgment, just being curious, because it it's really there's there's a reason behind this. I think it's part of like the way we were raised and part of our defense mechanisms, but there is also potentially more to it. And so it's okay to be curious. It's okay to think about it and to see if it is validation. If you need validation, that's not a bad thing. We all need validation. It's part of the human condition. And a lot of us, especially if we have grown up thinking that showing emotions are a sign of weakness, that really the truth is, and the crux of your therapy is that you probably really want to show emotion, have someone say, it's okay. I see you. And that must have been really hard. Of course, we want to be seen, we want to be heard, we want to be validated. That's just part of being human. That does nothing's wrong with you. That's not a bad thing. That's a wonderful thing. That means that when other people in our life show emotion, we say the same thing. It's it's a compassion. We're seeking the compassion and understanding which I just think is part of being human. So that would be that those are my thoughts about it. And then you said any tips on learning how to show emotions in front of others? It's tricky. Showing emotions is like where you're a couple steps down the line from where I would encourage you to start. I think the best place to start is to figure out what emotions you are feeling. And you guys know how much I love a feelings chart. And you can just Google feelings chart and they pop up and you can download them or print them if you're old school. Or you can just look at them, have one up on your phone that you've like screen grabbed so you can reference it. But getting to know your emotions is just part of this. And so each and every day, I'd encourage you to start out trying to find one emotion that you feel like in the morning or midday or at night, whatever's easiest, write down one emotion. And I want you to build up, you know, if that's okay, and that's somewhat easy, do that for a week, then the next week, I want you to do two. And then we're going to get up to three. And then, you know, I, you don't have to do more than five, but just building your way up to identifying the emotions that you're feeling every day. And then from there, once we're able to identify three to five, let's say that we feel every day, I want you to use those emotions in a sentence. Meaning, how do we describe, let's say I'm feeling happy. How do I describe happy without using the word happy? I would say, uh, you know, happy is one of the emotions. So I'd write it down. And then I'd write, it's when I feel so excited. I can't keep the smile from coming to my face. And everything in life just feels easier. Okay, so those would be my description sentences for the word happy for the emotion happy. I want you to do that for for these emotions, because we're just getting to know them. 
Because if showing them was always a sign of weakness, chances are we don't actually know what we're feeling. And our crying that we're wanting to do could be representative of a lot of things. We don't just cry when we're sad. We cry when we're mad. We cry when we're happy. We cry when we're overwhelmed. We can cry for a lot of reasons. Crying is really a cathartic experience. It's like a physical representation of emotional overwhelm. And so I want you just to get to know them and and then become friends with your emotions. Like maybe you watch that one movie that always makes you cry or listen to that song that always makes, you know, elicits the emotional response you're wanting. And See if we can just kind of tap into it. Do it in a safe way that feels more controlled so you can come to terms with the fact that crying is part of what we need to do. And so then talking about it in therapy, bringing this up with your therapist, how you want to cry, but you can't and it's uncomfortable. That's a whole nother part too that I would encourage you to do. Just know that how you're feeling is very normal. You can overcome it. Most of it is just being curious and understanding where it's coming from and getting to know our emotions in a more healthy way versus the way we grew up, right? Which is like emotions are bad. We stay away. We don't like you. Um, Now we're like, no, but you're important and you tell me something and I want to get to know you more. And so we kind of have to do that slowly, but surely, even though I know you're like, I want to know, do it now. You probably are feeling this buildup of all the emotions and all the crying you never were able to do, but don't worry, we'll get there. I believe through this like curiosity, this natural curiosity about our emotions and what we're experiencing and getting to know them better and getting to know ourselves better. I think the crying will come along with it. I know it's hard and I know we're always wanting like a quick fix it. Oh, sorry. It's me, not you for reals. Also, I'm talking a lot and I always want to yawn when I'm doing the podcast. <laughs> um, too much air out. But anyways, it will get better. You will feel better. Um, just give it time and get to know it. Cool? Cool. Okay, a little water and we'll get into question number three. It says, good day, Katie. I hope you're doing good. I am. Thank you. I have a question. Why do I keep pushing my friends away when I'm in a depressive episode? I know that's when I need them the most and I need their support, but I don't, but I just push them away and become kind of mean. I don't like it, but I can't help it. What can I do to stop myself from doing this? Thanks for your great and helpful content. And thank you to Sean for being amazing. I'll let him know. Also from Norway, so don't judge my English. Your English is impeccable. I would never have known. That was perfect. So everybody always says that. Don't judge my English. I'm from wherever. And your English is better than a lot of people who grew up speaking English. So 10 out of 10. Kudos to you. Okay. What a great question. Why do I keep pushing my friends away when I'm in a depressive episode? Because there's something about depression in particular, because anxiety can kind of do this, but nothing does this in the way that depression does, where depression makes us feel like nothing's good, nothing's going to help, everything is terrible. And why even hope for anything better? Why even think that someone would even like us or want to spend time? It takes away all pleasant, all joy, all hope, all excitement. It's just like this huge dark cloud that ruins our goddamn days, right? And it's exhausting. And it's depressing right? So that's why you push them away because you don't feel good. The world doesn't feel good. And sometimes when we're depressed, we don't even have words to put to it or how to express what we're feeling. And to try to talk to somebody about it or explain it just seems like too much work. That's even too exhausting, right? So instead, we end up just shoving people away. But the truth, like you said, is when I need them the most. And so the thing that we have to do, and this is going to be uncomfortable, is when we don't feel depressed, so we can't do anything when we're in a depressive episode. If we've already done this and we're sitting at home and we're like, God damn it, I did it again. Unfortunately, it's a little late. Unless you feel like you can do this now. If you do, all power to you, go for it. But in my experience, when we don't feel depressed, the best thing we can do is to plan for this to happen. Now, I don't know if you guys watched that old video I did with my friend Tom uh, Tomska is his channel name, but Thomas Ridgewell, amazing guy. He has really bad depression, depression and, and eat, um, eating issues and stuff. And he was talking about how when he's going into a deep depression, he has like a, like a stop sign, like a red, yellow, green kind of system with his friends to tell them how bad he is or if he needs help. And so green is like, I'm good. All things go. Don't worry. And sometimes they'll just check in and say like, hey, how are you? And if it's bad or in need of help, he'll be like yellow, uh, come over or something. 
even though he doesn't want them to. And then red is like emergency, like people will just show up with food to hang out or maybe take him to the hospital or something. Now, that's just his example of, of preparing for this, because otherwise he would sit at home alone and not have any support and feel worse and worse and worse, right? And so the best way to stop yourself from doing this is to prepare when you don't feel like this. And so does that mean you tell your friends, I'm so sorry, I know I push you away, I tell you just to not come over, I cancel plans, I'm rude via text, whatever it is. If you find me doing this, even though I know this feels weird, I need you just to come over or whatever it is. I need you just to call me anyways. Or, you know, I know with COVID, it makes it hard for people to come over, but that's, that's actually what we need. Um, or we need, maybe we need friends to text back more and just check in. I, I care about you. I know you're having a hard time. Any of that. I don't know what we need, but you have to think about it and then l- prepare them for it. And I know the depression wants to tell you, but they don't need that bullshit you know, I'm not even that good of a friend. They nope. I'm just going to tell your depression right now to shut the fuck up because it's just telling you lies. Because again, it takes all of our hope and our joy and our excitement for life. It just ruins it and throws it away. And so we need to prepare and push through and tell our friends to push through. And I'm sure they'll know and they probably recognize this is happening. And it also could open the conversation up for I don't know, I guess a a deeper connection, right? For them to say, yeah, I wondered what was going on with you. And yeah, that was kind of mean. And thanks for recognizing that it, it can deepen the relationship because everyone can understand what a depressive episode is like, at least even if it's just like 20% of what we feel. People know what it's like to feel like shit and to feel down. We've all had at least some down days and down mood. And most people I believe have had a depressive episode in their life, right? It's just two weeks for most days you've you feel those things. And that's pretty normal. And I think all of us could say, yeah, I probably felt that before. So give your friends a chance to understand and to support you. But we have to let them know how to support and we have to plan when we don't feel like shit. And so that's really my advice. And I know it's hard. But if you are struggling to figure out how to communicate that with them, like I've talked about in the past, it's just like writing our bullet point list of what we want to get across, practice saying it, make sure we add the ask in there because they're going to want to know how they can help practicing it so much so that it doesn't have any emotional charge for us and it's easy to get through and then plan to do it and do it. And I know I'm simplifying it. You know, I've talked about this more in long form on other videos and stuff, but you got this. We just have to start the conversation and offer some ways that they can support and help because they want to. We just have to figure out how to let them in. And part of that's effort on you, you when you don't feel depressed and then part of the efforts on them when you are depressed and that's just how we're going to manage it. Okay. Question number four, how do you know that you're ready to start talking about your trauma? I keep telling myself I'm not ready, but what if I just don't want to? A couple of months ago, I got some really strong flashbacks from what might have been sexual abuse. It happened when I was a child, but I can't remember the age or specific details of what happened. Totally normal. I do know that the thoughts gave me panic attacks, constant anxiety, and sleepless nights. When this all started, I entered a really bad depressive episode and even tried to take my own life. I wasn't successful because I got a panic attack while I was attempting. I'm so ashamed about it all. What if it didn't really happen? Was it even sexual enough to be an issue? I'm doing much better now, but I'm afraid things will get bad again if I start talking about it with my therapist. I appreciate you a lot. Thanks for everything. Of course. I'm glad you reached out. So, okay so many questions in here. The first is, how do you know you're ready to start talking about your trauma? Honestly, I don't think anybody ever feels ready or ever knows they're ready. So, uh, and I mean this in the nicest of ways, stop trying to figure out if you're ready (laughs) because you never will be ready. Um, The truth is, is if you're in a safe place now where you're not constantly being traumatized and you have a support system, like a treatment team, like a therapist you appreciate and you like and you're connected with, that's all I'd really, I think you need. And I know people might argue, sorry, I just have a tickle. Something's really gotten me here. Um, But I think other people might disagree or might have their own thoughts. But those are my thoughts, is that you're never going to be ready. And as long as you have a therapist that you trust and like, or that you feel connected to, and even honestly, for some of my patients, just I don't like the way I feel right now anymore and I need to feel better. That's another reason to start talking about it. And yeah, as long as you're safe and not being traumatized, that's really it. That's how you know you're ready because you're never going to really be ready. I think we look for like the sign that like, oh, I finally feel like everything in my life is going well enough for me to dig into this bin full of shit that I've been hiding for years. And unfortunately, that's just not how it works. And so 
I think you really just don't want to because it's hard. And that's, there's no shame in that. And I don't want there to be any judgment around the fact because I keep telling myself I'm not ready. But what if I just don't want to? Nobody wants to. It's really uncomfortable. Processing trauma is not easy. I mean, kudos to anybody going through it right now because it's really fucking hard. And I want you to know that even though it fucking sucks and it's hard, it does get better and it does get easier. And the good thing about trauma is that we don't have to continue going through it over and over every all the time. It's like a thing that we kind of process through slowly, work on. And when it's done properly, it's very unlikely that we're gonna have to go back and process through it again. So it's really great you're learning tools and resources that can help you in the moment and can help you process the past and even help you in the future if anything traumatizing happens to us, which, you know, God forbid it does, but I'm just saying you're, pre- you're building up your resiliency and that's always a good thing. And the fact that you got some really strong flashbacks from what might have been sexual abuse means that it's worth digging into, meaning this is something that you didn't elicit, your therapist didn't lead you down a path and make you think that you were suddenly abused sexually as a child. This came out of the blue because you're considering working on your trauma and that's what happens because we've been ignoring stuff for so long that then all of a sudden we can like, you know, step on a, like a splinter of it because we brought all the shit out into the, I don't know, into the, our conscious mind at least a little bit and then you stepped on one of those splinters that had been hidden over in the corner for so long and it brought you back to a flashback that you hadn't recognize an abuse and a trauma that you hadn't acknowledged to this point. And that's very normal too. So because this happened, because this just came about on its own, it's worth being curious about. It's worth talking to your therapist about. It's normal to not remember your age or specific details of what happened because like I've talked about in the past uh, memories, like in the movie Inside Out, because I love that film so much, they uh, create memories like marbles. That's what they represent like in the show, what they what they offer up as a representation of a memory is a marble. And trauma memories are like these marbles are trying to be formed. And it's like it slips out of whatever's forming these marbles and shatters on the floor of our brain. And so it's not filed away. It doesn't make any sense. We often don't have all the details because if we stepped on one splinter, that's only a part of that memory. We don't even have the other bits that were never processed and that are on, in other parts of our brain, right? And so I just want you to know that that's very normal and it's very also very normal for thoughts like that and flashbacks to give us panic attacks. I have a lot of patients who struggle with that. Um, but I would bring it up in therapy and I would talk about it. And I would say, I don't know if this really happened, but I had this flashback come to mind and it's very scary. And here's what I remember. And the truth about it is that as a therapist, I'm going to take your flashback as fact, as truth, because I know, think about this for a second, but I've never had a patient tell me about a flashback that was so overwhelming to their system that it caused them panic and stuff like that. I never had a patient talk about a flashback that wasn't true. Um, just because we don't remember all the details and just because it all of a sudden it was a repressed memory and it's bubbled up doesn't mean that it's not factual and it doesn't mean that it's not affecting us. And there's all this judgment around uh, around it for you. And I think the sooner you talk about it, the better you'll feel because it's caused panic, uh, constant anxiety, sleepless nights. And then a depressive episode and attempting to take your life. So please, please, please reach out and speak up and talk to your therapist. Hopefully you have a therapist or someone you can find. We need to get you in to talk to somebody to get some support because we're never ready to start talking about it. But flashbacks in my, okay, this is in my opinion, and I don't have any science to back me up, but I believe that when we, and maybe there is science out there if you guys find it, feel free to leave it in the comments. But when we start having flashbacks, I feel that it's our brain's way of saying, hey, hey, remember that stuff, that shit that happened that we weren't able to process? Remember it? Hey, let's work on that now. And it's just a reminder. It's like hitting this little reminder button over and over because otherwise it knows that we are emotionally safe right now. And so it wants us to start working on things. And that's why that came up is it's like, hey, let's work on this. I know you don't want to, but we really do. We really need to. Hey. And so I really see that as just that little reminder, like it's signaling the reminder in your brain. And so I think you are ready. And, um, Oh, and then, okay, so you do have a therapist. Sorry, I'm just reading the last sentence again. I'm doing much better now, but I'm afraid things will get bad again if I start talking about it with my therapist. Things can get worse a little bit before they get better. 
but they get better. Right now, if we just stay in with this, we know it's not going to get better. And so I would encourage you to talk about it with your therapist, tell them what's happening, tell them what you remember, tell them that this just flashback came up. And you can even say like, I talked to this, this strange girl on the internet, and she told me that she thinks flashbacks are a sign that I should be processing trauma. Uh, what do you think? You know, because um, that's just my my take on it that I, I think you feel safe enough to start working on as your brain's reminding you. And so I would bring it up. And it can get worse at first, but it does get better. And having the tools and resources to better manage it, building up that resiliency, having some of those resources to calm your system down, those are all important. And your therapist can help you with that. And so the sooner we bring it up, the better. And I hope that, that answer was just helpful because a lot of people feel that way, right? That there's, you know, when am I ready? Will I ever be ready? The answer is really no. You're never really ready to talk about your trauma. You never really want to, but it's important and it helps us heal and and move forward, feel better. Okay, question number five says, hi, Katie, do you think therapy is necessary for everyone? I spent three years in therapy, but I stopped going a few months ago and I feel so much better since I stopped. Is there something wrong with me? I know deep down there's some stuff I could address but is and work on, but is it really worth it? Should we always try to improve ourselves, go outside of our comfort zone and fight all the time? Or is it okay to just live or more stay in our bubble kind of life and avoid triggering situations? What do you think? Thanks so much. Mm. The word necessary, I don't really like. Like, is therapy necessary for everyone? I don't think so. I think therapy is helpful for everyone. And it's something that could be extremely beneficial for a lot of people. And so, if you spent three years in therapy and you just stopped going a few months ago, I think that's okay. I actually encourage people to take breaks from therapy to see how you're doing, especially if we've been in consistently for years. And I don't mean like stop forever and like, this is it. I encourage my patients sometimes to take what I call like a therapy vacation. Like, how are you doing? How do you manage on your own? Are, are the tools and resources that we're using actually working? Or do they only work like as a stopgap in between our sessions? And so those are all things that I'm very curious about and I encourage people to do. So I think that that's okay. However, I'm going to give pushback on this person's question because is it okay to live in a more stay in our bubble kind of life and avoid triggering situations? Now, the answer is no. And the reason is, is because life is not that predictable. I know COVID has made things kind of stay in our bubble avail like more available than usual like we can stay in our bubble so easily right but that's not life and when things start to open back up and things tend to be like kind of more quote unquote normal then we aren't able to avoid triggering situations half the time we don't even know if they're happening and half the time we don't know what's going on and that it could be triggering uh, other times we have to be placed in triggering situations because part of our job or part of our something in a relationship or you know like in a relationship example, I'm talking about like, let's say they love to go to concerts and you don't really like crowds, but you go anyway because you love them and they really want to see that artist, for example. So we can't always avoid triggering situations. And I think setting ourselves up for that just makes our world get smaller and smaller and smaller because we're letting our anxiety or our trauma run the show and call the shots. And so I, I think that it's okay to take a vacation. Sometimes we get exhausted from, like you said, constantly fighting all the time and getting out of your comfort zone. That can be exhausting. And I think taking a vacation from all of that is okay. However, it's not a permanent vacation. And I think if there is still work to be done so that you don't feel like you have to avoid triggering situations, I want you to feel like you can just walk into things and be able to manage them. And until we're at that point, I think that therapy is still beneficial. Um, Again, necessary, maybe not, but life does not accommodate our stressors and our triggers. We have to be better at managing it. And so I would encourage you to uh, consider going back and maybe even consider, I don't know if you want to switch therapists, but sometimes that can shake things up too. But I think taking a break was good. But if you still don't feel like you're able to manage anything life throws your way, even if it, you know, takes some extra effort, I, I think that maybe therapy is still something that could benefit you. So those are my thoughts. I mean, I, I don't think everybody needs to be in therapy all the time. I don't think that, you know, 
everyone has to be in it and doing all the work. All It's like, it's okay to take breaks. It's okay to not be in therapy for a while. Like I go in and out. I'll be in for like a, a month or, or a year, depending on what's going on. Sometimes just a quick check in like eight, I don't know, four to eight sessions. So a month or two. And then other times I'm, I won't go for like a year. So it's okay to take a break, but I want you to still I want you to feel like you can just go about life and not have to like avoid triggering things because to me that says that we're not quite ready to stop yet completely. Okay. Question number six. Why can't I tell my parents that I love them or hug them? I obviously do love them, but saying that is nearly impossible, even though we used to be very affectionate towards each other when I was a child. When my mom tells me she loves me, I can't get the words out and I feel really anxious. Do you know what this means? There are a couple things in the comments below this one were really great. Um, a couple of thoughts about this. So first is what changed? So if you used to be very affectionate towards your parents when you were a kid, uh, what happened? What's different? I would encourage you to journal about that. Think about it. Be curious about it because I'm curious about it. Because if you used to be very affectionate and now you can't, what has happened? What is different? Um, then also, I am curious about like uh, autism spectrum disorder because I've heard from a lot of people and that's what the comments were mentioning is that a lot of them are on that spectrum and feel like that's what prevents them from engaging in affectionate, you know, either hugs or words with their family. And so that's something that you could be curious about too. I don't, I don't know if that's something that's on your radar, but that's something that you could ask your therapist about or um, other people in your treatment team just to see. But so those are kind of my questions. What changed? And do we think there's autism spectrum in there? And um, another thing, and something that I know a lot of people have been talking about recently, maybe it's because of COVID, but maybe it's also just in general is like, we're just more worried and anxious lately because 2020 has been crazy. Um, is are we are we worried about getting so close to them because we could lose them? Are we like fearing the end of the relationship? I don't know. I'm just throwing out some thoughts here because I really think that you know the answer. We just have to be curious about it and you have to figure out what happened, what changed and why right now it feels completely impossible to to be affectionate towards them at all. Um, and so maybe it's that, uh, is it something that you've realized your parents did through therapy now and the relationship is different? Like, I'm curious, you have to have to be honest with yourself about it and, and figure out what the shift is. Because if, if you think it's autism spectrum disorder, then, then that gives us our own set of knowledge. And then we can use some tools and you can uh, talk to your therapist about that on ways to, unfortunately, kind of like not force the affection. But for a lot of my uh, viewers and patients who have um, ASD, they say that sometimes they just have to do it anyways, because they know that that's what they should do. But the fact that it causes anxiety in you makes me wonder what it is. And so I don't know if it really is that I think I, I feel like it's probably something that's shifted for you over time. And I want you to be honest with yourself about what that is. Because once we kind of know what happened, or why is it we realized something they did was super, again, it's not you, it's me. It's because I'm talking so much. Um, but did they do something to us that back in the day we didn't think was so crazy? And then now that we're talking about it in therapy, we're like, oh my God, they were abusive. That could change things, make us not want to say I love you or hug them, right? Did they allow abuse to happen and not do something? There's a lot of things that can shift as we get older, where the relationship with our parents isn't the same. And so be curious about it. Think about it. Journal about it. I think you'll come up with the right, uh, the right answers and the right, you'll, you'll figure it out is what I'm trying to get at. Because I think it's something like that. That would be my suspicion. I would have questions about that because I think that, yeah, something has shifted for you guys. Okay. Question number seven. How do I get over the feeling that I'm quote unquote faking it? And sorry, if you guys hear my elbow keeps falling off the table and we just like oiled the table. So it's like, you hear, you hear those noises like, burp, burp, burp. Um, that's what that is. So sorry if it, if you're just picking it up on the mic, I'd never know if things are picked up on the mic or not. But question number seven says, how do I get over the feeling that I'm faking it? I feel like a fraud. I feel like I'm faking my way through life. I've accomplished a lot in life, but I can't shake the feeling that I'm faking it. Help. I appreciate all you do. Much love. 
Much love to you too. This sounds a lot like, and this is what the comments said too, sounds a lot like imposter syndrome where you're like, what do I know? How did I get this? And so like, how did I get this job or this promotion or how did I make that much money or whatever? Um, the truth about this is that I have a video actually about imposter syndrome if you want to watch it. And I would encourage you to watch it because I think there's more tools in there than I'm going to be able to recall for this question. But I would want you to uh, write down some of the accomplishments that you've had and then write down how you got to those accomplishments. Like what were what were the actions or the uh, other successes that built up to that? Because for instance, like let's say I'm like thinking who am I to give people advice? Like, what have I actually done? And then, then I fact check. And so I'm like, well, actually, Katie, okay, so you did four years of undergrad. And then my judgmental imposter syndrome brain could be like, well, that wasn't all psychology based. Yeah, sure. Like, you know, half of it was, but half of it wasn't. You had humanities and religion courses and writing and blah, blah, blah. And then I could say, okay, well, then I did two full years of graduate school all psychology, as well as half of undergrad, all psychology. Then I gathered 3000 hours studying toward my licensure, then I got my license. And then I spent like almost uh, 10 years on YouTube or nine years, I guess, rather nine years on YouTube, doing research, talking to colleagues and sharing information as much as possible. So maybe that's why I could give people advice because I, I listen to other people, I share experiences that I've heard. And I've done a lot of research over the years. So maybe that's why, right? So we have to check our facts. And so I'd encourage you, instead of allowing this thought of I'm faking it, I'm faking it, I'm such a fraud, I'm such a fraud. And instead of allowing those thoughts to, to take up house in your brain for any longer, because frankly, they're a pain in the ass. Instead of allowing them to be there anymore, I want you to check your facts. Okay, so I'm faking it. Okay, how how would I be faking it? What have I accomplished? What are the things that have led up to me being successful? Okay. I'm a fraud. I'm a fraud. Okay. Well, did I go to school for this or get, uh, have enough experience? You know, how did I come to be who I am? How did this work out? What happened? And then even if you can't like agree with your own accomplishments, who are the people? Cause there's always people involved. Like all of my supervisors signed off on my clinical hours, right? Uh, my school gave me my degrees. I mean, I went to Pepperdine for both. So I have two degrees from there. They gave them to me. Okay. So they must've thought I did something right. We have these, uh, this hierarchy, right? So we have some people above us. My boss gave me that promotion or gave me that bonus, right? We have these people who've also based on facts decided that we're worth it and that we've accomplished something. And so Number one, I would encourage you to watch my video, Imposter Syndrome. So just get on YouTube and put in Katie Morton Imposter Syndrome and check that out. And then we're going to have to keep checking our facts. Pay attention to all the times you're going to have to thought stop maybe a little bit when you're like, I'm such a fraud and blah. I want you to be like, stop, 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 stop in your head or distract by doing something else to stop the thoughts. And then I want you to pull your brain into the slow story of how you became who you are. Because it it can be, I know it can be difficult. I know it can be hard to get out of this thought cycle because it's probably very comfortable. You've probably been in it for a long time, feeling like I'm not worth it. Who am I? Wah! You know, and we've all felt that way. And I definitely have gone through my own chunks of imposter syndrome, like writing my first book, Sweet Mother Mary. I was like, I'm not a writer. This is going to be a turd. Everybody's going to hate it. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. And you know, why is this publisher even giving me a chance? Like, it's crazy. But we have to check our facts. We have to check the facts. We have to stop those thoughts. And slowly but surely, we can retrain our brain to have because it's okay to have some healthy confidence in yourself. Like you said, you've accomplished a lot. And it's okay to feel good about it. I know people want to put down like people being successful. I don't know why that's like not a quote unquote cool thing right now. I'm not sure. But I think it's fucking cool. And I think all of us working harder and accomplishing things and feeling confident in our abilities is powerful and amazing. And it's okay to feel that it's okay to think that and I just would encourage you to slowly but surely, you know, move towards a more confident you. And I think a lot of that has to be stopping these thoughts, checking your facts. And hopefully that faking it feeling will go away because you aren't faking it. You aren't a fraud. You just haven't accepted your success yet, but we'll get you there. So yeah, pay attention to that and keep it, keep us posted. Okay. 
Question number eight says, hi, Katie, is it normal to feel like I need to prepare a lot before therapy? Before each session, I read through my journals and think about everything I want to say, as well as how I will answer any potential questions my therapist might ask. This is a lot of work. This might sound weird, but I prepare so much that it feels like I'm rehearsing for my sessions sometimes. Do you think I should try to change or to challenge this or is it normal? The thought of not preparing really scares me because I feel like I wouldn't be able to think of anything I need to say in the moment. Thank you so much for all that you do. You're such a blessing. Oh, you're a blessing. Thanks for sending in your question. Um, Okay, (laughs) so I know this is normal because I've heard from so many of you that you do this. And my my therapist gut says anxiety much. I have to just put it out there because I'm pretty sure this is anxiety driven because feeling like you have to do all this stuff and like rehearsing kind of and reading everything and thinking about what you want to say. It's all fine to think about what we want to say and prepare to have things to talk about. But the fact that you feel like you're preparing the answers to any potential questions is where I feel like it kind of goes too far. It's fine to have our thoughts pulled together. I don't want to like deter anyone from doing some inside work before therapy because I think that's great. So it's not like this is bad. I just feel like you're trying to assuage your anxiety and I feel like in a way we're feeding into it by doing this. And so my challenge to you would to be to take off that uh, answering, like preparing how you'd answer any potential questions. I want you to try to remove that next week before your session and see how you do. And then I think it's perfectly okay and I'm comfortable with you continuing to, you know, read through your journals and try to think about what you'd want to say and writing that out. Like you could write little bullet points. I think that's okay. Other than that, I feel like it's a little much because I want you to be able to be in the moment in therapy and tell your therapist maybe that you have so much anxiety around sessions that you build up all this. I would tell your therapist you're doing this, that like I'm doing all this stuff because it really scares me. I think that's the really important verbiage there for me is the thought of not preparing really scares me because I feel like I wouldn't be able to think of everything I need to say. So the CBT-based type of therapist that I am makes me want to ask you, okay, so if you weren't able to think of everything, then what would happen? Well, then that therapy session would be a waste. I'd want to challenge that thought. And I'd be like, well, would it be a waste? Because did we were able to tell anything else? But I, you know, but then, okay, so if therapy session was a waste, then what? Okay, well, then I just wasted her time and or his time and my, my money and blah, blah, blah. Okay, so if you wasted your time and money, it's just an hour and... I don't know, say a $30 copay, well, well, then what? So I would be curious. It's okay to answer those questions. Um, That's kind of what we call like downward arrow questioning and CBT because we're trying to figure out like where is this belief or thought coming from? Where's the root of it? So if that happened, then what? If that happened, then what? I want you to ask yourself those questions and go down this rabbit hole until you feel like that's where it's coming from, which usually, and this doesn't work every time, but usually as we do that downward arrow questioning, like, okay, if I don't think of everything I could say in therapy, then that session's a waste. Okay, then what? Okay, then I've wasted their time and money. Okay, then what? Then um, I'm going to feel really guilty because someone else could have had that session. Okay, well, if somebody, why would that, you know, like, then I'd ask another question like, okay, we felt really guilty if someone had that session. If you felt guilty, what would that happen? Well, then I'd, I'd feel like I'm worthless or something. And I'm, I'm totally exaggerating, but that's kind of where it gets to is like a firmly held belief that like, I'm not worth it. They shouldn't be wasting their time on me or I'm unlovable or no one understands me. It's one of these like firmly, firmly held false beliefs we have about ourselves that these downward arrow questions usually lead us to. So I would do the work on that and be curious about it and let your therapist know that you're doing it because it sounds anxiety driven to me. And and it's coming out of some false belief about yourself and about therapy and your sessions. And I would just be curious about it because it is normal to prepare a little bit. Like before my sessions, I maybe spend like 30 minutes trying to think about like, what are the things I want to talk about? Sometimes I write a list. Sometimes I don't prepare at all. It just depends on my days. Sometimes I'll be like, oh shit, I got to get to therapy. Like I'm running late already. It's horrible. So every time is different, but sometimes I do write down questions and and. Uh, issues and things like that. Or I'll keep notes in my phone. That's usually easier for me because sometimes then I can't remember anything from the week. So as things happen, I jot them down. Um, so preparing is okay, but this feels a little bit excessive. And so I want you to talk about it and be curious about it. And I'm interested to find out what you what you find out. So let us know if you feel comfortable sharing. I would love to hear. Okay, question number nine. Can someone be resistant to therapy because one sees through the strategies of the therapist so that they don't work? 
I loved this question. I was just talking to another Kenyan, a member of our community on Patreon the other day. And she also worries about uh, her therapist and like feels like she can see through the strategies. And so there's a couple of thoughts to this. So I, I go to therapy myself. And do I know what my therapist is using the strategy she's trying usually, but it doesn't stop them from working. What does is defense mechanisms. They are our best and worst enemy all at the same time because they keep us safe in some regard, but they also keep people away and keep people out and prevent us from doing the work in therapy. So when we're, it's the resistance to therapy that's going to prevent you not knowing the not that you can see through the strategies of therapists. That's not actually going to prevent because even if you saw through them and you're like, oh, they're just asking me this to get to that, then just tell them that. That's what I do to my therapist. She'll be like, I'm really curious about how this relationship and I'm like, I'm just going to save you some time. That is because it parallels the relationship that I have with my mom or, you know, like I'm just going to let's cut, let's cut the shit. I already know. I know that that's it. Thank you for reminding me. It's like her just saying it. I'm like, oh, fuck. Yeah, right. But that's because I'm sharing and I'm leaning into the work that she's wanting me to do. I, it only speeds up therapy, actually. It doesn't act, resist it. The resistance would be me not wanting to share, me thinking there's some malicious intent from my therapist or thinking that they're going to use this against me or that it's all a waste or I'm never going to get better or whatever beliefs I have about myself or the therapeutic process as a whole. That will stop therapy from going forward and that will prevent it from feeling good from us getting the help that we need. And so I don't think that someone can be resistant to therapy because they see through the strategy so they don't work. Someone could just be resistant to therapy, period. Seeing through the strategies means that even if you know, because like I said, I'll know what she's doing. I'm like, oh, it's CBT or oh, that's some, uh, I don't even know. That's a tool from object relations. Like I'll recognize things she's doing. I'm like, oh, empty chair. I could do that. That could work. It's it's me leaning into it because I know what's happening. But as long as I'm still leaning into therapy, it will work because I'm still sharing. I'm still challenging myself to open up and be vulnerable and, and figure out what the fuck is going on because I don't like how I feel, right? And so if you can see through the strategies, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily lead to resistance unless you just don't want to feel better, which doesn't make sense because you're in therapy. So I would just encourage you to to recognize what your defense mechanisms are. You can even look them up. To, I don't know. Do I have a video about defense mechanisms? We should look into that. I'll add that to the list if I don't. But I really think that it's more of a defense mechanism. I would assume you're a very logical person. The person who asks this question probably likes to, you know, uh, make sense of things logically in their brain before they do anything or likes to intellectualize issues. That can happen when we, you know, we see through the things in therapy and try to we're like, oh, it's not going to work. Instead, I would encourage you to lean in and be like, hey, I'm going to see them because I want to get better because I don't like how I feel. So maybe even though I know what they're trying to do, maybe that would feel good. And maybe that could help me. We have to be open to it. It's almost like in the way when Kashan will say this in movies sometimes, and it doesn't directly correlate, but I just really like this term. It's like uh, when we're watching a film and I'll, I'll be like, but obviously that's not going to happen because we already know he has to go. And Sean's like, suspension of disbelief, Katie. Yeah, that, 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 suspension of disbelief because we're doing this thing. And I feel like that applies in therapy sometimes. Like suspend your disbelief that this could work and let's just give it a try because you don't know because you haven't done it. And so suspension of disbelief, you're going to see someone because you don't like how you feel and you're wanting their expertise to assist you. So let them assist you. That's what we're there for. Um, yeah, so those are my thoughts. But I'd love to hear your guys's too. You can leave them in the comments and let me know what you think. Okay, final question. Question number 10 says, Hey, Katie, I hope you're doing good. I'm 19 years old. And in the past few years, I found myself getting strongly attached to female figures who are older than me. It's almost like I've got a little hole inside of me and I'm constantly trying. I'm constantly looking for someone to fill it. It sounds like it. Whenever I get attached to someone that uh, I would like that person to care about me just as much as I care about them. However, I know that this is not going to happen, not because these people are insensitive, but simply because it's not their place to give me the care and understanding that I'd want from them. I've been trying to figure out where this is coming from for a while now, and I think it might be due to the fact that I wish I had a deeper relationship with my mom on an emotional level. I can recall many times when I was really upset and crying and she would just tell me, you're always depressed or you're too sensitive. That sounds a little emotionally neglectful. 
when all I really needed was to be heard. However, this to me doesn't look like a good enough reason for me to have attachment issues. Oh, it is. Don't worry. And I feel guilty because she's a good mom and has always done everything for me. I'd like to talk about this with my therapist, considering she's one of the people I'm attached to, but I feel too guilty and ashamed to. I know you've probably talked about attachment many times, but I just really need some advice on how to tell my therapist. It's a pattern that's been going on for too long already, and I'm afraid it will never go away if I don't do something about it. And you are correct. It won't go away if we don't do something about it. And it is very common. And I don't know how many times I have to tell people, but like there's no judgment or there's no scale that we get to place our emotional neglect or abuse or whatever's happened to us. There's no scale where we're like, oh, okay, it reaches the the minimum amount for me to have issues with this. There's no scale. Spoilers, no fucking scale. Any issues that we've had, any emotional neglect, any abuse that we sustained in our life is enough for us to have an issue with it. You wanted a deeper relationship with from your mom. You wanted her to emotionally meet you where you're at and she wasn't able to for whatever reason. And you might be able to repair that relationship with her now and have a deeper connection now. That might be possible. I don't know. But you are correct that we can't just keep trying to put other people in that hole and be feeling overly attached to them. And I'd be curious also, like, you know, when when you were like little, how emotionally available was she to you? And like, you know, because you're talking about a couple scenarios. And I'm just curious how far we can track this back. Because my my guess would be that it's more than you recognize. And so first of all, very common in therapy. So don't think your therapist is going to think weird thoughts about you or think anything is creepy or something's off. It's something that we talk and learn about a lot in our, our practice, in our training, in our education as a whole. And I would, I think the best way to tell it, bring it up to your therapist is like you brought it up for me. Like the way that you worded this is perfect. I would just say, you know, I find myself getting strongly attached to other female figures that are older than me. And I, it feels like there's this little hole that I'm trying to fill. And I've, I find myself even doing it with you. I, I know that the attachment that I feel to you isn't healthy. It's not one that I want to continue. And the only thing I can think it comes back to is this, these situations with my mom blah, 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 blah. You explain that out. Um, And you can even say like, and I feel really guilty and I don't know, I feel embarrassed and ashamed to even mention this to you. That's okay to say it. If you can just read what you wrote to me, I think that's perfect. Trust me when, again, when I say it's super common, your therapist has dealt with this a lot. It's, it's so common that we try to fill like because I've talked about this in other podcasts where like a therapeutic relationship is a really healing one and because it's a healthy healing one it can off it can sometimes be the only healthy healing relationship we've ever had which you know it can make other things complicated and it it brings up a lot for us right because if we've never had a healthy uh caring and compassionate relationship before, then we don't even know what to do with it. And because we don't do with it, we try to put it in that hole that we felt since we were a kid, right? And so that's why it's so common. And this happens to a variety of people for a variety of different reasons. But it's important to talk about it because if we don't talk about it, it will just continue on your end and you'll try to ignore it, which is almost like emotionally neglecting yourself like the, you know, and so we just need to get it out into the world. We need to tell your therapist this is happening. You have so much insight. You you already feel like you kind of understand where it's coming from. You know that it's not healthy. You can verbalize that to her. It's completely okay and normal. And then it will give her an idea of maybe the other things that you should work on. Because there's a ton of things you can work work on when it comes to like attachment-based therapy and attachment theory. There's so much stuff she can get into and help you with. And there are even attachment-based therapists, just FYI, that like specialize in attachment. Um, but a lot of it has to do with boundaries and there's so much to work on here. So I would encourage you just to read it out the way that you said it to me Um because there's a lot of good information in here. And I think your therapist will say, I kind of sense that. Therapists almost always know before we tell them, just FYI. But this gives, I'm sure she'll say, that's so helpful. That gives me a lot more information to deal with. That makes more sense. Okay. And she'll probably write it down or whatever. And then, you know, work on it with you accordingly as you move forward. She might not have something in that very first time you tell her in that session, but 
she will come up with things down the line because there, again, there's so much we can do when it comes to attachment. There's inner child work there. Like, cause your mom, I assume your mom is still around. There's like working on the relationship itself and healing. Some of those past wounds could be really helpful for you. If that's not possible, it's doing that work yourself, like being able to heal. Um, and you can talk about that stuff in therapy and do some role playing with your therapist about it. There's so much work that can be done. And I think your therapist will love to have this information because it'll really help you feel better, you know, more quickly. And that's really what she's wanting to do, right? Is help you, make you feel better. Get, uh, fill this, help you fill that void so that you don't feel so icky all the time or so lonely or maybe lost or just a little bit neglected, right? So yeah, those are my thoughts about it. I hope that that's helpful. It's very common. Don't don't feel weird about it. There's nothing to be ashamed of. A lot of people experience this. We just need to tell our therapist so that she can do her best and offer up the resources that we're really needing. And that's it, you guys. That was question 10. That went by really quick to me for some reason. But thank you so much again for everything. I hope you have a wonderful and healthy, happy Thanksgiving. If you're out of the States, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week and weekend. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Take care of yourselves and I will see you soon. Bye. Ask her about your self-esteem or why your feelings hurt. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.